We'll return to Galatians. We're still in chapter 4. Austin this morning alluded to the fact that we'll be addressing some of the uh, subject of covenants today, tonight. This is true. I'll go and uh, I want to do a small bit of catch up, just a, a little looking at chapter 3. As far as recap, maybe you forgot, maybe you're not reading Galatians every day like some of us. Uh, we know the promise, I mean the, the problem in Galatians was the false teaching by the Judaizers. They came and they would add to the gospel saying that if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be right with God, that's only done through the Jewish way. They proselyted people. This is nothing new. What they, their error was that they added to the gospel. A very, very grievous error. Something horrible to be, and Paul in uh, early in Galatians said that if anybody does this, they are damned. They are cursed to hell. He said it twice. He meant what he said. If we look back just a little bit in chapter 3, he starts, he kind of eases into the concept of covenant and promise and all these things. He's building a case. He's saying, he's trying to tell them why you cannot have law slash works with a covenant that works by grace, grace alone. In chapter 3, we see things like uh, in verse 10. He says, you cannot rely on works for salvation. And that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about keeping the law. We're not talking about morality. We're not talking about sanctification specifically. He's talking about initial salvation. You're saved. What, what makes you justified? What makes you right with God? What keeps you right with God? You cannot rely on works. In verse 11 in chapter 3, he said it's, it is evident. He's seemingly agreeing with his own argument. He says, obviously, it's evident no one is justified by works. Come on down to verse 15. We see the word covenant come up. We see in verse 16, the, the word promises. Uh, he uses familiar, not familiar, familial words. He's talking uh, with these people like they're family, like they're his children, like he's their brothers and sisters. Uh, we see the word offspring. We see the word inheritance. Uh, in verse 19, he asked the question, in answer to his own argument, well, if, if a person is not justified, ju remember justification uh, is the whole, the whole issue. If a person is not justified by law, then, then why do we need the law? He says it comes alongside. He's, and he addresses, uh, let's see, where was that? He talk, starts talking about the Abraham in, in uh, contrast to... Moses, and he says in verse 17, chapter 3, 430 years afterward. 430 years after what? 
after Sinai, after the law was given. He said, uh, that covenant of law, when the law was given, that did not cancel out the covenant that had already been established with Abraham. He said, that agreement with, uh, with, that God had established with Abraham stands. It's always going to stand. He says, the law does not cancel that out. Just because the law gives, just because God gives the Ten Commandments, He establishes, uh, later it would be ceremonial and sacrificial laws. These, these set, set Israel aside. It defined Israel as a people, as a nation, as something exclusive. All this pictures God's holiness, His specialness, the fact that He was going to make a plan of redemption, or he had a plan of redemption, by one means, by one man, through one nation. It wasn't the nation that was special. It was the man that the nation would bring about. Okay. That brings us up to uh, chapter 4. He uses more words. He goes back to talking about an heir. Uh, he uses uh, the word Abba, Father. He says, Uses, he addresses them as children. He says, I feel like I'm going through childbirth again. This hurts me so bad to see you threatening your doctrine by looking at Judaism as an addition to Christianity. And I, I know at some point tonight I'll refer back to Paul's history and his learning and his amazing uh, powers of reason and, and theological knowledge. It, it just blows me away. And uh, this is a huge resource for Paul as he's addressing in every epistle like he does the Galatians. <clears throat> so, having said that, I'm going to, instead of reading, I'm just going to start right in at verse 21. And my Bible has the... Uh, title, The Example of Hagar and Sarah. So let's pray and we'll look at the scripture. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, we are humbled and dwarfed by the influence and the power of your word, of the fact that history is yours, that history bears out your truth that you have both gifted and burdened us with the gospel. It's very, very powerful. It's, it is the power of God for salvation. God, I pray that you'll help me to understand. I pray that you'll help me to, to convey your word tonight, Heavenly Father. God, please, may the Holy Spirit speak. May he uh, invade this place. I pray that he would... Uh, apply the word, not specifically like I proclaim it, but God, as you, as you want it, dear Lord, as to individuals in our individual lives. God, please help. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> in verse 21, the title, the uh, heading I gave to this section, verse, just this one verse, was, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And he's speaking to the Galatians as if they could 
respond. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? By being under the law, he's saying you have submitted yourself to it. You're putting yourself to where the law is the defining factor as far as salvation in your life. He's saying you... And he has the example of the Jews. He has the example of his own experience as a Pharisee. He says, you're, you're putting yourself under And he knows exactly what he's talking about. And he points out the fact, he, by asking the question, do you not listen to the law? And he means by that, do you not comprehend? Do you, do you not know? Have you not read it? And we have to give the Galatians a small bit of leeway here. No, they didn't know as much as the Pharisees. They didn't know as much as Paul did. Uh, Paul was the champion Pharisee. And he went to the Galatians, and obviously he labored. He taught them all he possibly could in the time he had. And he poured into them and poured into their lives and poured into the uh, churches as far as the gospel and, and as much as he could. They didn't have, I think I mentioned this last time in, in the last section that we addressed, pretty much what they had in their past was idolatry. And no, they didn't understand the law, but they had some. He had given them some as far as the law. He says, you don't, do you even know what you're getting into? Paul had experience. They didn't. Uh, another thing, then the Galatians, and I think I mentioned this in the very first installment, they had the reputation of being somewhat naive. I'm not going to, you know, not all of them. I'm not saying there were a bunch of, bunch of dullards. This, was their, this is the way they were characterized. They were easygoing people. They were somewhat naive. They, they could be influenced easily. And I'm making myself clear, I hope. Remember, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul warned uh, Timothy. He said, there are people, and I'll, I'll read this, for among them, he warned them about these people, for among them are those, and I think he might have been talking about the same, same group, those who creep into households and captive weak women, now the weak women are the naive people, they're burdened with sins and led, away, led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. His emphasis there is the people who are influencing them wrong. What I'm making the point of is naive people, they can be influenced. The Galatians had that, that reputation. The Judaizers came along, influential, dressed nice, spoke with authority. They came from uh, Jerusalem. Some people say they came from Peter. Uh, they had a lot of pull. Uh, Paul was telling them, you'll be sorry later. He knew this. Something that we uh, can identify with. We see people that get into things. Uh, maybe you bought a car. You really couldn't afford it. You regretted it later. <laughs> the most famous one is uh, buying a timeshare. You can't get out of it. Nobody's going to give you, nobody's going to buy this thing because it's not worth what you're paying for it. Paul is saying, 
you're going to regret this. You're not listening. You're not, you don't know what you're getting into. You're going to get in over your head. Point two, a lesson from Scripture historically. Now, the strength of the Judaizers was that they would tell people that they need to be a Jew or be proselytized as a Jew, become a Jew, and they would then be called sons of Abraham. Now, Paul points out in verse 22, he said, It is written that Abraham had two sons. Notice Paul, he didn't have the complete canon that we do. He had the, he had the Old Testament, believe me. For this purpose, it was plenty. In the hands of Paul, it was plenty. He could refer to prophecies and everything about the Old Testament that pointed to Christ and the fact that the gospel is the way of salvation. He would not, he said, it is written. He says, since you want to play Abraham, he says, okay, let's go on that field. I'll give you the home court advantage. Yeah, we'll talk about Abraham. What about Abraham? Remember Abraham? You want to be a son of Abraham? Well, the thing is, Abraham had two sons. We know from the Bible, Abraham had more than two. He had eight sons as far as we know. For this illustration that Paul's going to put forth, he's going to use the two primary sons, Ishmael and Isaac. They had picked, the Judaizers had picked the form of argument. They had picked how they wanted to go about this persuasion. Paul said, fine, we'll do it that way. Paul is saying true. Which one do you want to be? And he points out the fact, he said, they, Abraham had two sons. One was a slave and one was a free man. One was a free, two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. This is a very important distinction. And he says, and this is where it gets uh, significant because their whole relationship with God would have to be spiritual. It would have to be something beyond the flesh. And he says, the one <clears throat> that was born, in verse 23, the son of the slave was born according to the flesh and would remain a slave. And he makes references to Sinai. He makes references to Egypt. And just a point of interest, there's practically no reference to Egypt in any of the New Testament or Old Testament to point to anything good. It's always punishment. It's always idolatry. It's always uh, something bad. And he, he says, this slavery that comes from Sinai, the law, and a slave, he's characterized by Egypt. He says, that's one of them. And he said the other one, was born by a free woman. Now this one by the free woman was also, now that we need to point out that also this was a legal thing. So we're going to look in Genesis, just go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll look at some events. We're going to see what led up to uh, this story and, and why he uses this, uh, well, allegory. I'll go ahead and say it. So let's turn to chapter 12 of Genesis. 
And we'll look at what led up to this. We see in chapter 12, verse 2, when the Lord came to Abram. And I might, I might mispronounce, I might say Abram when it's Abraham, I might say Abraham. When, we know who we're talking about. He says, I will make of you. In chapter 2, he says, this is, this is God's idea. He says, I led you out of, out of uh, Chaldees. He said, he initiated the, the, the agreement. Also, in verse 7 of chapter 12, he says, I will give this land to your offspring. Skip up to chapter 13. Probably just turn a page. To verses 15 and 16. God repeats this. He keeps coming back to Abraham. He keep, and sometimes he'll add more details. Sometimes he'll tell just a little bit more. He'll repeat it. Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, were getting impatient. He says in verse 15 and 16, For all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Now, what is the hang-up here? They didn't have any offspring. The problem is, God had promised, He said, I'm going I'm to make this covenant with you and for your offspring, for generations to come, way down the road. They had no offspring. So this puzzled them. And they were both old. Turn over to chapter 15. God comes to Abram again. Verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue, I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. So, how would you feel? How do you think Abraham and Abraham and Sarah, Sarah, Sarah felt? This covenant is made by God clearly, unmistakably. Your offspring, there is no offspring. God's covenant was dependent on a promised son. There had to be a son. There's no way it could, uh, it could happen otherwise. So now we'll look at, in chapter 16 of Genesis, how was Ishmael involved in this? 16 verses 1 through 4. <clears throat> this is years later. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, still yet. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. 
So, Ab so after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. This is where we come to know this, the first son, Ishmael, that Paul is using. What does it say about Hagar? She was a slave. Uh, when they had journeyed down into Egypt, they had that little run-in with the king, and he took Sarai, he took Sarai and found out she was his wife. Well, he had already given her a bunch of gifts. I mean, he had already given Abram lot, lots of gifts. Uh, livestock, servants. Very likely, Hagar was one of these servants. They had this servant. It's not... It sounds horrible to us uh, that this would happen. It's uh, the way people would, would have kids back then if they, if they couldn't have kids naturally. The thing is, they done it by their own plan. They done it by their own uh, impatience. And uh, if you notice... In verse 2, Sarai, she already felt bad because she couldn't have kids. This was kind of like a, a mark on women back then. If you couldn't have kids, they were, they were, it was a thing of shame. And she said, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. He says, she says, I can't do it. Uh, obviously, the problem's with me. Here's this young lady. Take care of it. It was a, a man's way of taking care of a problem that didn't exist. In, verse, in chapter 17, God reappeared to Abram. This time, God reappeared to Abram. He just takes up the conversation like there is no time gap. He just walks back into it and starts reiterating what he said before, talking about the covenant again, talking about his son again. Uh... And he's laying out details, and the details were still there. They all depend on a son. There has to be a son. Uh, in verse 2, chapter 17, it's, very, it's more details. Uh, I'm sorry, before that. He established the sign of circumcision. Then, in verse 2, he changed Abram's name. To Abraham. Then uh, verse 15, he changed Sarai's name. Then he even told the name of the yet unborn son, Isaac. All these plans are being laid out by God. Uh, still was no son. And they had already stepped in and done something. Uh, so now there's going to be a problem. And finally, turn to chapter 21. We see the promised son. Verses 1 through 7. These other times, it says the word of the Lord came to Abram, or the Lord visited Abram. This time the Lord visited Sarah. As he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, does that sound like somebody that keeps a covenant? Yes, it is. 
He made a promise. He made a covenant. He kept it. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abram called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah had borne him Isaac. And Abram, Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. And everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Another aside, if you don't, I mean, uh, it's fun to notice how many times laughing and laughter occurs in this whole account. So Isaac is born. The son is born. Uh, point three. A lesson from history. Allegorically. This is verse 24. The verse says, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. He says there's two covenants, both symbolically and historically. What are they? One of them is Sinai, pointing to the law. The law was never... Remember, we're talking about justification. We're talking about being saved. The law was never a means of salvation. So, no, it didn't save anybody. And he says, he also puts slavery in there. This is used describing the Judaistic system. They're slaves to it. They can't get, up, they can't get away from it. There's always another sacrifice you have to commit, I mean, have to perform. There's always another offering you have to make. There's always another feast you have to keep. You have to go back and be cleansed. Their whole system was, it was very religious, but that it couldn't save. And they were slaves to it. If you, if you departed from it, you were ostracized. It was never satisfied. This system was never satisfied. These Jews, uh, it was like being on a treadmill. You just kept working, kept working, but you never got anywhere. Uh, go on in verse 24. I mean, uh, yeah. Bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds, or she is in line with, this lines up with, Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. He's saying that this is going on right now, in the present time he was talking, he said, this is going on in Jerusalem now. And he was kind of taking a jab at these Judaizers saying, if you come from, the, from Jerusalem and this system that's going on up there, he says, it's slavery. Jerusalem wants a picture of heaven on earth. This was the promised city back in the Old Testament. It was a city set on a hill. The gold, supposedly, could be seen for miles. This temple was ornate and beautiful. When you come up over to a certain point in the horizon, you saw this thing glowing. It put to shame all the other 
cities, all the other worldly and pagan cities. It was once a picture of heaven on earth. They called it Zion. He says, now, it now corresponds to this Jerusalem that they had back then. It's defiled and putrid. Why? Because man has taken what God intended to point to Jesus and to point to salvation and point to redemption and he's twisted it and conformed it and molded it to make something, just something to do to bring people money and to bring them influence. They had shaped man's idolatry in, into a sacrificial system and they had modified it to generate money and influence and that is the opposite of, of a spiritual connection with God. Hagar and Ishmael represent this covenant law. Besides being two sons, there's also two Jerusalems. Look in chapter, I mean, uh, verse 26. He mentions another Jerusalem. He says that Jerusalem has things going on that are bad. Once it was uh, it typified the presence of God with man. It has deteriorated. These uh, Jews have made it bad. All these years they have made idolatry into it. And he mentions another Jerusalem. Because he's not going to leave out Jerusalem. He's not going to forget Jerusalem. But the Jerusalem above is free. Now above having the New Testament like we do, we know that it actually does mean above. But in this sense, he's talking about the one that's better, the favored one, the superior one. The better Jerusalem is, is free. Not the slavery, but the free. Hagar and Ishmael represent slavery, and they correspond with Jerusalem said the Jerusalem that is above, the better, the superior one, the true Jerusalem is freedom. And he says, she is our mother. He identifies with the Galatians again. And again in verse 27, what does he say? It is written. And here's where we're, uh, the reference that we had this morning from Isaiah 54. And it's like Paul is saying, uh, like he started out in the beginning do you not listen to the law do you not know the law do you not understand these things and he says this is what it says rejoice O barren one who does not bear break forth and cry aloud you who are not in labor for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband The one that's better, the one above. Now, if you, we'll turn to Revelation chapter 21, we'll see about this Jerusalem that comes down. It's a picture of the new Jerusalem. Verses 1 through 4, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice 
from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This is what the old Jerusalem typified with the ark and the priests and the temple. The old Jerusalem pointed to the new Jerusalem. He said, Hagar and Ishmael, bad. Slavery. They're, they represent law. They're saying the new Jerusalem, that's the one you want to be associated with. That is the uh, covenant that you want to get into. Jerusalem will this uh, reference in Isaiah 54 Israel at this particular time had been in exile and Jerusalem was pretty much destroyed but in this promise God says that Jerusalem will prosper again and part of that prosperity is going to be more descendants, it's going to be more people, it's going to be uh, what Paul is teaching the the Galatians, most notably, that God's redemption will extend to the whole world, all people. The old Jerusalem can't compare to the new Jerusalem. So we're going to point four. Father Abraham and Brother Isaac in verse 28. He says, Now you brothers, and he tells them which one, he gave them the choice, Abram's got two sons. He gave him the choice. He says, which one do you want to be? He says, now you brothers, if you are in this covenant, if you have genuinely believed, if you have repented and accepted Christ, he said, you are the children of promise. This promise and promise and covenant are similar. And he says, that agreement was made for you. You don't have to do anything else. The one who say they're sons of Abraham, unless they've repented and they're doing it through faith in Christ, no, they're not. You are. And then he points out the event of history again in verse 29 that we see in Genesis chapter 21 when uh, Isaac was born. Uh, later they would have a, a festival and a feast and a celebration when he was weaned much later than ours normally. It could have been two or three years old. They would celebrate. This child is weaned. He's coming out. He's, he's, he's probably going to live now. Uh, let's celebrate this child. Well, when they done that, Ishmael, who was probably 14, 15 years old, he saw this and he, he was mocking. Again, the word our, uh, our Bible translated as laughing, he was mocking and he was deriding. Uh, Isaac as far as inheriting he was probably thinking yeah you're not going to get nothing punk I'm the firstborn. it was horrible uh, this you can uh, well imagine displeased his mother and had, they had a fight just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him, and that's what he's talking about, 
him who was born according to the persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. And he was making reference to the fact that these Judaizers were trying to avoid persecution by supposedly adopting in Christianity. Uh, they're saying, you know, they won't pick on us as, as much if you're a Jew also. Uh, he's saying, Isaac, the promised son, he was persecuted. It's still going on now. Uh, Paul is pretty well knowing that this letter will be read to the people who were doing the persecuting. He knows who he's talking to. Notice in verse 30. Wait, I'm sorry. Back up. When they had the disagreement at the feast and Sarai came to Abraham with this complaint, Ishmael's making fun of your son, your real son, your promised son. And she said, get rid of them. Throw them out. And the word of the Lord came to God, I mean came to Abram, and he said, yeah, she's right. He said, this man, this boy that you came up with, that you, even after I made a promise, even after I gave you my word, I gave you the sign of circumcision, all that, I made a covenant with you, you went ahead anyway and done and had a son trying to fix it. Yeah, you're right. This, this boy cannot stay. You cannot have an heir like this that supposedly will want to horn in on this inheritance later. He does not represent my plan. It's wrong. So what does he say? He said, cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Now, what does that tell us about Judaism, about the sacrificial system, about the priests, about the temple tax, about all these things? If that represents that covenant, what does he say? He said, that's done. Cast it out. That part is over. There's a new way. There's a new, well, actually, it's not a new way. It's the way it was always planned. He said, get rid of that old. Cast out the slave woman and her son. And he says, and he calls them brothers. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. In the beginning, he said, there's two sons. There's two Jerusalems. You will be one or the other. You will be. Saying, you want to be the one that's represented as free and as legal and as applying to what God's plan is. Some things we can draw from this. One is the authority of Scripture. Like Jesus... Paul got his solutions to spiritual problems or questions from Scripture. At least three times in these verses, he either says, it is written in verses 22 and 27, 
or in verse 30. He says, what does the scripture say? We get the authority of scripture. The Galatians had only the Old Testament training that Paul had given them. We have the complete whole canon at our disposal. And you can draw from this and our, our way of studying the Bible and interpreting, interpreting the Bible is to say, let Scripture interpret Scripture. This may be the most blatant, plain, literal example of that that we have in all of Scripture. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Another thing. The gospel stands alone. The Bible has one message, and that is that Jesus saves. It will be on His terms, and those are the terms that we find in Scripture. It will happen in His time. Nothing we can do will accelerate it or make it more complete. Moreover, anything that we do to try to help the process is actually a hindrance. Another thing, we must have perseverance in persecution. We read in 2 Timothy that all who live godly lives will be persecuted. Our glorification is yet to come. We will inherit it after we die. But for now, we will be persecuted. Isaac was persecuted a little baby, done nothing. He was persecuted just because he was a son of promise. Those persecuting the Galatians actually came from within the church at that time, from Jerusalem. Uh, they said they were from Peter. I don't think they agreed with Peter's uh, thinking, or with Peter's doctrine. So, number one, don't be a persecutor of, of brothers and sisters. Number two, don't give in to persecution. And don't tolerate persecutors in our number. Another doctrine. All of creation is, is God's glory in His sovereignty. All of creation exists to glorify God. Rightfully, God Himself orders every event for this specific purpose. Unselfishly, and from pure grace, He has chosen and ordained that this includes the redemption of His people, His Son's bride, the church. The allegory of Sarah and Hagar is literal and historical and biblical. This is a big hang-up for some people who try to interpret the Bible and is especially a big hang-up for uh, Bible critics. None of it ha just happened and happened to fit into God's plan. God Himself orchestrated every detail to fit His plan of redemption and to be a lesson for us and the Galatians. All to the praise of His glorious grace. Another important fact. Christ's atonement. We are the children of the free woman. We see in Romans 8 verse 2. 
The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Number six. God's covenant is spiritual and eternal. Let's look in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. I couldn't pass this one up pertaining to the New Jerusalem. Chapter 12, verse 18. This is a spectacular, beautiful picture. And I have, in my, in my past, I have wondered what heaven is like, and everybody wonders what heaven's like, and we have suggestions, and we have certain things that are uh, given in the Bible and Scripture, and none of them seem quite satisfying or complete, but this one is really good. Verses 18 through 24. And notice the reference. He's, and I hope I live long enough that one of y'all will do a study through Hebrews. Did I get to hear it? Because it's so, so great. He's countering the Hebrews who had the same idea. They wanted to add Christianity to Judaism. Notice his references here to Genesis and and the Mount Sinai account. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched. You have not come to something you can touch. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I tremble with fear in contrast he says that was, that was Sinai he says this is Zion but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus. God and Jesus are here. Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, not in the old temple, sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is a picture of Jesus, the son of the new covenant. Sinai is gone. 
useless as far as eternity is concerned. The new Jerusalem is eternal because Jesus is there. So in conclusion, man's problem. Why do we even, why do we even talk about justification? Why do we even talk about righteousness? Man's problem is sin. In Adam, all fell. We're in it. Like a person who's born into a slave family, he can't get out. Follow the story after what we read about Ishmael and Hagar. When they were cast out, they didn't go back. It said that eventually his mother went and found him a wife from where? Egypt. They went back to the place associated with slavery. There's no getting out. There's no hope. Man cannot get out of sin. He can't work his way out because he's too weak. He can't pay his way out because the debt is too much. So what is the solution for sin? The solution for sin is righteousness, goodness, and holiness, morality, and honesty. Everything really and truly good by God's standards. He alone sets this standard. All transgressions must be punished. All debts must be paid. That's the law. The law's not bad, but it can't save you. That's the law, and it's just. Jesus, in his perfect life, earned that righteousness for sinners. In his suffering and death, he took on himself all at once the punishment our sin had earned. We were born, we were not born into salvation. In fact, the opposite. We were born into damnation. The old covenant of works never saved anyone. Was not intended to. God did not expect that to save anyone. Instead, it pointed to and amplified and shined a spotlight on the covenant of grace. You can't fulfill the covenant of works. Not only that, like the Judaizers, they tried to enforce it on somebody else's life. You can't enforce it on somebody else's life. Repent and believe. And you can get the solution for sin, which is righteousness. Let's pray.